all, and welcome to the Source Code Podcast. My name is Chris Sanders. I want to welcome you into our sixth episode of the first season of Source Code. I'm really excited to be joined by Matt Swan today. Matt works for Microsoft, leading an engineering team there that is security focused. And Matt had a lot of really interesting things to say. Of course, we're going to talk about his story and growing up in rural California and how he eventually got to Microsoft where he's been for really quite some time, especially when you consider the typical career length uh, at a specific job for a security practitioner. He's been at Microsoft for a long time and he's seen a lot of change in that organization and a lot of change in diversity and how security groups are managed. What I love about what Matt had to say was talking about his team and really creating a culture of learning. You're going to hear him talk about not being afraid to say, I don't know, and how important that is. Matt has a really great team. He does a lot of really innovative work. Uh, I'll mention a couple of his presentations that really struck me throughout the uh, discussion we have, and I certainly recommend you taking a look at those. He has a lot of great stuff to say, and I think especially if you manage a security team or maybe want to someday, you're going to gain a lot from learning how he manages his team and how he actually takes what is it's kind of rare these days, a more traditional uh, computer science engineering perspective, uh, really focused on evidence-based engineering uh, with his team and using those theories and those principles to advance uh, the state of security within Microsoft and within the customers and technologies they support. So with that said, let's get on over to Matt Swan. Now, Matt, I know you're a principal engineering manager at Microsoft, but what does that mean? What is it that you say you do here? That's a great question, Chris. So uh, as a principal engineering manager, I report uh, to the OneDrive and SharePoint team here at Office 365. And my team's job is to defend the customer data that has been entrusted to us, uh, both in OneDrive as a consumer product, and then in SharePoint Online as a product for small, medium, uh, and, and large enterprises. Um, so I've got eight guys that report to me. We're a software engineering org. Um, and our job is to figure out how we do intrusion detection, how we protect access to customer content, um, how we do incident response, how we do forensics, all of the tooling that we need to deliver on our guarantee to our customers that this is the safest place for their data. Wonderful. That's great. It uh, sounds like a, a very important job, of course. And of course, you and I don't know each other. I don't think we, we met in person. We we met kind of on Twitter. And that's how I, uh, I met you and asked you to be on the podcast here. And I, you know, related to your job, I actually saw a talk you gave, I believe it was at uh, Blue Hat in Israel, uh, mm-hmm. about some lessons learned. And I got to tell you, it's probably one of the most favorite talks I've ever seen in terms of like a lot of really great lessons learned and a lot of really nice, compact information all together in one place. So for those who are listening, I'll provide a link to that. Definitely go out and check out Matt's talk from Blue Hat. It's it's absolutely fantastic. Um, but with that said, I want to kind of, you know, we talked about a little bit what you do now. I want to kind of take it back to the beginning and talk about kind of how you got where you were and some of the things you learned along the way. So uh, obviously you're you're at Microsoft now, so you're in Seattle, uh, but you're not you're not from Seattle, correct? That's right. I grew up in California's central coast, so about an hour north of Santa Barbara, so like right between L.A. and San Francisco, and kind of grew up in a small, mostly agricultural town. Um, but, you know, I had a lot of family there nearby and, and kind of really was mentored by my grandfather, who grew up uh, on the East Coast, but spent decades following the aerospace industry across, this, across the United States. And he is a tinkerer in the best sense of the word. He loves to know how things work. He loves to take things apart, loves to fix things. Um, And so, you know, I remember growing up sitting next to his workbench, watching him solder things together and fix things. And then for as long as I can remember, you know, there has always been a computer in the house. So that started out with a a Commodore 64 in his bedroom and then a Commodore 64 in in my bedroom growing up. Um, And so, so just have always been exposed to technology and have been exposed to people who don't accept technology as a, as a consumer item, but as something to be taken apart and explored and, uh, and really put to use. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's great. Now, when, I, when most people who are, I think, not from California think of California, especially in tech, they think of Silicon Valley, right? But it sounds like the area you're from is far away, from, at least not very much the same as Silicon Valley. It's a completely different place. Is that correct? That's right. It's more known for strawberry fields and growing broccoli than it is for uh, for computer science. Broccoli? They grow broccoli in California? They do. Wow. You didn't live on a broccoli farm, did you? 
I did not. I grew grew up you know, maybe across the street from a broccoli farm, but not right there. Yeah, that's. I, I think I would rather grow up across the street from the strawberry farm, but that's just, <laughs> that's just me. Uh, well, no, it sounds like. Uh, well, it sounds like. Heck, I mean that that probably isn't too different from where I grew up in Kentucky, right? Where it's agricultural, agriculturally focused, and a little bit different. And I mean, when you were going to school in that area, was there a lot for people like you who were really interested in tinkering and computers and things like that? You know, I had a, a couple of it, uh, of kind of formative experiences. You're, you're right that, you know, elementary school and, and high school were not tech-oriented. Um, it's certainly different than, I, I think, going to school in San Jose where there's, you know, robotics clubs and, and a bunch of startups around you that are mentoring students as they grow up. Um, for me, you know, I was really attracted to math and science, uh, even in elementary school. So a couple times a year, there'd be this science day thing where they would invite local businesses to come talk about their industry, how things worked. Uh, you know, an example there would be we had a, a sugar beet industry uh, kind of down the road. So they would come in and show the manufacturing steps that they went through to convert raw sugar beets into packaged sugar that they would ship to consumers. And so that kind of really uh, fed my love to see how things work. Uh, you know, I was the kid that would take apart all of my toys uh, as, as a child. And then, you know, growing up in high school, you, day one of high school, you're handed this graphing calculator that lets you write programs on it. Uh, and so that was kind of a natural extension of, you know, getting to interact with computers as a kid and, and getting to put that to use. Um, you know, again, math and science in high school was a big deal, but I had a, a professor or a teacher that taught Pascal um, and I managed to get into the class, I think, as a freshman. And she wasn't, she didn't have a passion for technology per se, but she had a passion for teaching. She had a passion for students. Um, and so that really carried over to me. And I got to both help other students, you know, kind of figure out what it means to program, how to debug something when it's wrong, um, but also, you know, had this association of technology and learning with just excitement with the notion that I'm going to learn something new today. And so that kind of kept me hungry and kept me going. Yeah, that's great. Now, were you, were you, would you consider yourself like a good student in the sense that like you were kind of a go-getter in all of your classes or were you really more focused specifically just on the math and the science and, and really the programming? That's a really good question. Um, I loved English. I loved biology. I loved, you know, all of the, the science topics. I loved anything kind of cerebral. Um, but what I found in, in university was that I had never really learned how to learn. Because in elementary school and high school, things came fairly easy to me. So when I got to university and I hit classes that were difficult, you know, I hit Calc 3, I'd hit real statistics. Um, heck, there were computer science classes that were really difficult. I hadn't made the connection that learning is hard. It's difficult. It doesn't feel good. Sometimes you have to do things by rote or by practice. And so it turns out that what I had experienced as kind of the boring, repetitive homework that you do in math class that's actually a, a talent, a skill that you need to pick up so that you can learn more difficult things kind of as you progress on. Uh, so I, I really didn't, didn't conquer that until after university, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, at yeah. some point figure that out. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I don't know about for you, for me, university was an interesting experience in that there were actually a lot of things that I wanted to learn, which is a little bit different from high school for me, because there are only so many things I felt like I could learn. But once I got exposed to more computer science and other like minded people, it was more of a fire hose. And I had all these different things coming at me. And a lot of the decision making I had to make was, you know, what do I want to learn? It was actually having to selectively allocate my time towards, you know, for me, computer science-y things and less about some of the more core classes. I mean, did you experience something similar yourself? Yeah, that makes sense. I definitely felt like I got the most value out of my core computer science classes. But I always had the feeling that we were spending a lot of time looking at, not minutia per se, but at a very, very small slice of the problem or of, of what's possible with software. And at the end of my, my curriculum, I think I, I graduated in 2004, started in 2000, the university, at Cal Poly San Luis in California, was starting to spin up a software engineering program. And as a senior in computer science, listening to students talk about what the software engineering curriculum was going to be, I realized that is what I've been hungering for. You know, rather than focusing on these little bite-sized elements of networking and graphics and operating systems, with the hope of inventing something new or learning to solve the unsolvable. You know, with software engineering, I wanted to learn how do I work as a team to build something durable? What best practices should I take with me? How do I solve real problems that maybe have been solved before, 
but haven't been solved in a way that uh, really lets people fulfill their, their biggest potential there. Yeah, absolutely. So now how did you, I guess, how did you decide, you, know, you started, you said you got a computer science degree, I guess, from, from your mm-hmm. university. How did you decide to even go into computer science? Was it a kind of a, an extension of this, uh, the course you took in high school that you mentioned? Yeah, it was a pretty natural thing. Um, you know, growing, computers at that, at that time with a Commodore 64, you, when you turn it on, you, you're programming from day one, right? You know, everybody learns how to say, you know, 10 print hello, 20 go to 10 and say, look, I can, I can print hello an infinite number of times. Um, and so I had been kind of practicing that craft growing up. And so it was the most natural thing in the world to then go on to university and, and study, study computer science. I think I thought a little bit about English, but it didn't, it didn't feel like the right fit for me. It didn't feel like what I was made to do, uh, even though I loved literature and loved English in high school. Yeah. Well, and I guess there's certainly a lot of similarities to be drawn from that too. When we talk about programming syntax and, and language syntax and this notion of being able to create things really from nothing. Right. And so there's, I think there's something to be said about that. Yeah. It's a different way of communicating as well. Right. Like ideally uh, when you're writing software, the, the practice of coding should feel like speaking English. It should feel like breathing. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, there's definitely similarities there. Well, you know, and, and one thing some people tell me a lot, especially I, I deal with a lot of young people now, and they'll often say that they got drawn into programming because they felt they could better express themselves via, I love that. via that medium. And I, I don't know if any of that, you know, rings true for you, but a lot of folks maybe aren't as good as expressing themselves via words, or maybe they weren't when they were younger, and then they learn to express themselves better via code. Does that does that jive with any of your experience? Yeah, I, I, I like that perspective. I, I think for me, it was maybe a little bit more of, let's see what I can get this thing to do, or let's see if I can figure out how this thing works, and then if I can push it a little bit beyond its limits, um, yeah. like was, was maybe more of, more of what drew me to it. Sure. And I mean, it sounds too like your, your parents, I think you mentioned your, your dad was a tinkerer. And so maybe just by virtue of, of kind of his influence on your life, that kind of led you down this path a little bit too. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, so those my grandfather was a, a really big influence there, um, and yeah, having a having a mentor, having someone that made technology approachable, uh, was really important. I don't know that I'd be in the place that I am today without having a, a figure like that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly. Uh, I guess they say it takes a village. So, I mean, it sounds a lot like the combined influence of of maybe the the environment you grew up in with your grandfather and, and this teacher you mentioned in your school who taught you the the initial programming and all that kind of combined to get you on this path that to some degree led you to where you are now. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, absolutely. So, obviously, you've got a, a fantastic job at Microsoft now. But where did you start? What was your first job? And I don't mean technical. Like, what was the very first job you had that you were paid to do? Oh man, um, I think I was a secretary part time at the church on weekends. There you go. That that'll do like, it. As a junior high student, right? Way yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, that that's a good one. My my first job was uh, we we go back to to strawberries. I guess I was selling strawberries and watermelons on the side of the road. So it's amazing where, where, where people start and they can uh, uh, they can end up. I'm sure you probably learned a few things through that uh, that church secretary job that eventually helped you uh, help you where you are today. Yeah, you learn to serve. Right. I think that's an important thing that you carry into the business world as well. A distinction between am I here to, to make myself great and get what I want done or am I here to serve you and, you know, help further what it is that you're trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I love that. I love that, that that notion of of service. And I think to some degrees in technology, that's something that is lost a little bit on new people entering the field today, especially when you can go into this field and maybe go straight into maybe uh, penetration testing or straight into defense. You lose this concept of interacting with end users sometimes. And I think that's a really kind of a lost art or something that isn't really nurtured as much as it should be. No, that's true. Yeah. Cool. So you're in college and you're getting this computer science degree and, and the software engineering route kind of opens up and begins appealing to you. So where do you go from there? Obviously, you, you're nearing graduation. You're starting to think about what your next job would be. How did that progress for you? You know, after after four years of doing the computer science curriculum, I didn't I didn't want to stay for another year of software engineering. And it was it was unclear whether it would be a plus one program or a plus two program. Um, it was still new enough that they hadn't really fleshed out their curriculum. Um, and I was, I kind of felt ready to leave. I really, really felt like I was going to learn more by being in industry. Um, so, you know, went to career fair, handed out my resume a whole bunch, uh, and didn't get a lot of bite. 
But one day I received an email from Microsoft saying, hey, this guy Scott, who's an acquaintance of yours, uh, who sat next to you in, in, in a class, was a, an intern at Microsoft this last summer. And we asked him who you, we should talk to to invite up to Microsoft uh, for an interview, and he gave us your name. So would you send us your resume over email? So it's just completely out of the blue, the most random thing in the world. So you know, I followed that process. I got flown up to Microsoft. I went through a couple of rounds of, of interviews with, I think, the Vista user interface team and, and someone else and got told no. Right? So they had a, you know, to deliver a difficult message, you know, flew me back home, kind of continued to go through the, the job searching, searching process. And uh, where were you at this point? And how close to graduation were you at this point? This would have been, I think, January, February. Okay. And I would have graduated that June. So, so you were sweating a little bit at this point, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. So really pursued Cisco. Uh, Cisco pursued me a little bit. You know, I I really like networking. I think it's kind of an interesting topic. So I ended up getting a getting a job offer to, I think, write, you know, driver UI for Wi-Fi drivers uh, that Cisco would be shipping. So I knew I knew I had that as kind of my my fail safe option uh, when I graduated. And around that same time, I got another email from Microsoft. And they said, you know, we have this other opportunity and we think you'd be a really good fit for it. Are you willing to give us another chance? Are you willing to let us fly you up again and go through another round of interviews? And I said, you know, I've got nothing to lose. I've already got the career thing taken care of. I have a job for, for when I graduate. Why not? Right. So I, I flew up here and my attitude in the interviews was there was no stress. There was no anxiety. I felt like I could just be myself, have a casual conversation. If nothing else, this is practice for interviews in the future and I ended up getting two offers from the different teams that I had interviewed with. Uh, one of those was Excel, one of those was SharePoint. Uh, and I remember in the the final interview round for the SharePoint team, the leader of that team was so passionate about what she was working on. You know, she led the test team and was had this great customer focus, loved her team, loved the product. I said, I want to work with her. Like I want to work with someone that has as much passion for the product uh, as I do. I think this would be really neat. I want to quickly tell you about another one of our sponsors, uh, which is Squirrel. And Squirrel is a tailor-made threat hunting platform designed to aid security analysts in finding threats that other tools miss and enable organizations to investigate threats faster with fewer resources. They make this possible by fusing data sources into a graph exploration environment that allows analysts to easily pivot through diverse data sets using linked data analysis. And I can tell you personally, I'm a big fan of this approach. I've advocated graph-based thinking for quite a while. As opposed to detecting single anomalous events or users, Squirrel's investigation supporting security analytics are focused on detecting the tactics, techniques, and procedures of cyber adversaries. Now, one more cool thing I love about Squirrel is that they've pioneered some great thought leadership and a lot of content on threat hunting in the community. They produce some really great blog posts I like reading, and they're getting ready to release a new Threat Hunting Academy lecture series. I'm actually going to be recording one of these lectures for them soon, so make sure you check that out. You can learn more about threat hunting and the Squirrel product at squirrel.com. That's S-Q-R-R-L.com. Make sure you tell them that you learned about their product from me on the Source Code Podcast. Now, back to Matt. I mean, obviously you had already, so you went through one round of interviews. It didn't work out so great. And then you got the call back for the second round. And you said, you said, you know, you don't, you didn't have anything to lose and all that, but was there, was there something to the notion that, you know, this was Microsoft calling and there's obviously the name there and that really means something that's very well recognized. I mean, was there, was there kind of some like mythological allure to that, that also led you back or am I completely off base there? No, it's, it's ironic that you mentioned that. So I was an Apple zealot growing up. Uh, I was the Apple campus rep at, at my university. We had Macs at home. I thought they were the greatest thing in the world. Um, never in a million years would have expected that I'd be working for Microsoft. Wow. So, so, so they was totally out of the blue. So they didn't, they didn't like remove your status as uh, as Apple rep at that point. And make <laughs> no, it, they did not. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to know. Well, no, that's, that, that's interesting. Um, that's fantastic. So you're, so you're at Microsoft, you're, you're doing the SharePoint thing. And so I didn't realize this, but you're, I guess you're for the most part, kind of a lifer right now at Microsoft, at least to this point. Um, how, how many years have you been there in total? Uh, it'll be 13 in June, 13 years though. That's, that's great. And that's so rare, right? Like, I mean, in, you know, I I know you're, you're working in security and obviously Microsoft isn't exclusively security, but in security, I mean, the average length of a job is maybe three to five years, but you've been there for, for quite a bit longer. And that's a pretty amazing thing. Do you ever sit back and think about that and, and think, you know, wow, that's an awesome thing. Yeah. You know, there's a, 
it, it has been really amazing from a couple perspectives. One, the perspective is that I've essentially grown up with the people that are in leadership now uh, in my organization. So I've always kind of worked in the same org with the same people. And I've gotten to, to build relationships with them over those 13 years. And so it's really, it's really neat to be in a position where I can just walk into someone's office and build on that pre-existing relationship that we've developed over time. Um, but two, it's been really neat to watch Microsoft change over that period, change from a company that when I joined was very revenue focused, was very focused on what's the next way to make a profit, how do we make more profit, really kind of worshiping at the altar of money which didn't align with my values, right? my values of you know, integrity, transparency, serving the customer, doing, doing kind of right by the customer, even if it harms you, to now watching in the last two to three years the culture change that has happened here, where now our culture is a culture of integrity, a culture of transparency, a culture of humility, of admitting, you know what, maybe we're not doing this the right way, Let's get something out and get feedback on it so that we can change uh, and being self-critical. So it is, it's been really, really, really rewarding and really neat. I almost appreciate working at Microsoft more now, seeing how far it has come more than I did with just the name recognition when I showed up on day one uh, in 2004. Yeah. Well, and it seems, I mean, you mentioned, you know, that, that whole notion of getting feedback and, and bettering things. And uh, I've noticed, I mean, that's kind of a theme throughout some of the, the presentations you've given is is taking this feedback and utilizing it to, to better the process kind of at a fundamental level. And I think what I've noticed is that seems to be a thing Microsoft's really embraced. And of course, you have all these big names coming out of that yourself. Absolutely. But, you know, you also your your John Lambert's, your Mark Rosinovich's mm-hmm. and, and really positively impacting, you know, not just security, but computing altogether. Because when we impact security, we impact computing and, and now the, the fabric of everyone's lives. And that's been an impressive thing for me to see from the outside, but I bet from the inside too, and being able to be mentored and, and work with some of these folks has been a pretty uh, awesome thing from your perspective. It has been. It's a really small community uh, inside of Microsoft for the security engineers that are working together. Um, so, you know, it really is kind of a, a flat a flat hierarchy uh, in, in the sense that I can go ping John Lambert, I can go ping Mark Rasinovich if I have an idea and I know I'll get a response. And the response doesn't differ whether I'm a new engineer who started six months ago or whether I'm me and I've been here for 13 years. Like I've never felt like I had to prove myself in order to have a conversation with someone about something that was meaningful. Yeah, so it's been a, it's been a really rich environment to grow up in. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I think a lot of people I think would envy that and to have that level of mentorship that is also kind of non-judgmental because that's that's a hard thing to find right now in the information security field. And and I think probably uh, again alluding back to what I said earlier about people changing jobs every 3 to 5 years, that probably makes it much harder as well. Um, now, so you're in Microsoft and you're doing all this SharePoint stuff and and you're advancing kind of along your career path. You've been here for so, so long. What what are the things you think that really helped you continue to advance from a knowledge perspective? What are the things you focused on learning or focused on understanding that really helped you move forward? Yeah, to to me, one of the one of the character traits or or things that really drives me is this the sense of doing right by the customer. And so I started out not as a security engineer in SharePoint, but as just a test engineer, right? I was responsible for making sure that the user interface elements of some particular features worked correctly, that, you know, when you clicked in the right places, that things things did what they should and all the pixels were aligned. Uh, but I had enough contact with the security engineers on our team that when one of them left the organization, he came by my office, sat down and said, Matt, I'm leaving the team. I'm going to go be a developer somewhere else. But... I think you would be a really good fit for the security driver role in our organization. I've told our test manager that you'd be good for this. I think you should consider it. And he walked out. And that was you know, kind of like getting that uh, serendipitous email from Microsoft as a, as a university student. This was the first point where I got to transition from a, a tester to a security tester, to a security professional. So for me, the next three years or so, we're really learning, okay, what is the security development lifecycle? What is our duty to the customer? What are the failure modes uh, that we see or, or the vulnerabilities that we've introduced and how do we prevent those? Um, and so, so for me, I'm a, I'm a maker of lists. 
and I like to be able to tell a story and kind of put things in a like an intellectually rigorous framework. So I spent those those three years figuring out how do I think about classes of vulnerabilities, how do I write down you know the bug bar, what's good, what's bad, what's maybe kind of bad, but it's okay to ship with it, uh, and then continue to iterate on that and understand you know okay I have recurring classes of vulnerabilities, what do I need to do about that? And then the the next pivotal point in that that learning was the shift from an on-premise product that we would test on our own for three years and then deliver to customers to running a cloud service where now I'm responsible for the operational security of that environment. Is cross-site scripting the most important thing or is it spear phishing and one of my operations engineers losing his credentials or having them misused? Uh, so that was almost like starting over, saying, okay, I know how to do risk analysis and I know how to think about threats, but the landscape has changed. Uh, so I needed to adapt to that to that new role. And what made that possible for you? I mean, was it just a, just a lot of trial and error? Was it the combined knowledge of the people at Microsoft? I mean, what, what kind of allowed you to facilitate gaining that knowledge? With the, with the software development lifecycle, there was, there was a, a, a lot of mentoring that went on. Uh, with other people who were experts in, you know, web application security at the company who were willing to spend time teaching me what I needed to know. Uh, you know, one of the nice things about being in an organization that has kind of mature software processes is that you have good bug tracking as well. So it was really easy for me to go back and say, for a given class of vulnerability, what have we found in the past? Is it uh, is this common? Is it uncommon? What decisions were made and why were those decisions made? So I was able to incorporate that into my own thinking. Um, but Microsoft, uh, particularly at that time, had a really strong trustworthy computing group uh, that continues to have a really strong trustworthy computing group within Office. Uh, and so those those guys were were 24-7 experts on web app security. And so even as a junior engineer, I was able to ask them, you know, is tell me about the same origin policy. Tell me about Flash and PDF rendering and script. What should I be worried about? What should I not? When it came to cloud security, uh, the year that I started that role, I went to Black Hat and DEF CON. Uh, Black Hat was super eye-opening to me uh, from the perspective of just the sheer, the heterogeneity of the threats that my service faced. And as a network defender, trying to figure out what, you know, what tax should I take or what is an intellectually viable or consistent framework for me to defend the, the data center, I watched a talk called Intrusion Detection Along the Kill Chain by, uh, uh, by Four, who I think was at Facebook at the time. And his notion of, you know, instead of differentiating between high fidelity alerts and low fidelity alerts and tuning away the noise, keep it all and try to correlate on machines and users and time, maybe correlate on kill chain steps and see if you can establish a pattern between those high and low fidelity events to, to identify an intrusion as opposed to just anomalies or random data. So I got the bug at that point for telemetry and for trying to figure out how to, how to get as much telemetry as possible out of our system and how to really stitch it together to understand whether I was compromised or not. Um, so that that was that was really pivotal, which is again, I guess, is a, is a source of mentoring, uh, just being surrounded by people that are really talented, that have spent you know maybe a decade in their field learning to do what they do, and then taking that to a conference and being willing to teach everyone else in the audience. Yeah, and I love what you mentioned about telemetry because I mean I've always believed that if you want to change something, that starts by first measuring something. And if you can yes. me if you can measure it, then you can make appropriate decisions and things like that. It's it's amazing how many people go and seek out change before appropriately measuring something first. And I mean, it sounds like you very much early on realized that I need to be able to measure these things appropriately. And with more information and the right kinds of information by asking the right questions, I can then seek out the correct answers. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the things that was important for me to learn early on as a security engineer was never to bluff when talking to, some, to, to another software engineer about whether there was risk in a feature they were working on or, uh, or whether they needed to change something. It's always safer to say, I don't know, and then go do the experiment. And so when you bring that, that safety of I don't know into intrusion detection, network defense, well, you're naturally, the, 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 the first question anyone asks you is, oh, so this looks like a really interesting team to join. Tell me about your service. Have you ever experienced a breach? 
And the only thing you can say with integrity is, I don't know. I don't have the telemetry yet to know whether I have an intruder in my environment or not, but I'd love to have you join my team and yeah. help me find out. Right, so that's where we started. Yeah. So that's a good point you bring up. So saying, I don't know, that's from my perspective. So as I, as someone who's hired people in the past, one of the things I look for is people who are not afraid to say, I don't know, but yes. it seems as we go on in time, that's harder and harder to find. Um, a lot of people coming out, especially new in the field or straight out of college are really hesitant to show, I guess, weakness or, or say they, I don't know, or maybe they perceive it as weakness when kind of, we know it's not necessarily that. Why do you think it is that, that most people are maybe a little bit afraid or they're hesitant to say, I don't know. You know, I've seen two different kinds of culture at, at Microsoft. I've seen a kind of a performance-based culture where the goal is to win. Right? If you're in a meeting with someone else, there's a conflicting opinions about something. Uh, I'm not going to show any weakness. I'm going to pull out the best possible arguments. And whether my way is the best thing for the customer or not, I want to get what I want. Right? I want to win this argument. And I, th I think that leads to a culture where you're afraid to say, I don't know, because you're afraid to show any weakness. The culture that is in my org today is a culture of learning. I, you know, we, we expect people to make mistakes. We explicitly tell people it's okay to make mistakes because that's how you learn, right? If you aren't making mistakes as you ship new features, as you try something new or maybe build a new service, then you're missing out on an opportunity. Maybe you're not taking enough risk first, but you're missing out on an opportunity to learn what works and what doesn't. Um, I really have a heart for not growing security engineers from outside the org to join my team and have them grow up, but taking software engineers that are maybe fresh out of university and teaching them how to solve security problems. And so because they don't think of themselves as, as security experts, but just as kind of software generalists, uh, I think I, I, I've seen a lot less of the um, I need to prove that I'm really smart kind of attitude uh, from the people that I work with. And instead, we all kind of bring, we all bring a, a certain level of humility to the table and say, you know what, we're all new at this. I still feel like I'm new at this. Here's the problem that we're trying to solve. Are you willing to help? You know, let's go do some experiments and see if we can find something that works. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, well, let's let's go dive into that even a little bit further. I mean, you you work probably with with some folks who are new, and I, I don't know. Are you responsible? Or do you participate in hiring at all? At your, what you're doing now? I do. Okay, yeah, I'm responsible for hiring for my team. Okay, perfect. Well, well, tell me this then. You know, you're you're always interviewing people and trying to bring on the best and the brightest. What are maybe a couple of the themes or a couple of the big things you see with the people that you're interviewing where they're deficient? Where what's the biggest areas where you think people are struggling the most? Kind of across the candidates you interview for a job at Microsoft. You know, the especially for a security role, the thing that I would love to see integrated into computer science or software engineering curriculum um, is the notion of, it's really threefold. I wish that people, that my candidates came in knowing how to do uh, a risk assessment of maybe an existing system to say, okay, we're going to add this feature. Here's how the whole system works. Let's brainstorm. What are maybe some risks associated with this new functionality that we're going to add? Um, I, I wish that my candidates knew how to threat model a net new system. You know, just be able to draw something on the board and talk about, okay, I want to build a communication system that allows some people to chat securely. Okay, well, who are they? Oh, okay, they're human rights. Uh, they're people in the human rights organization, maybe working clandestinely in a, in a company or a country that uh, is hostile to their presence. Okay, so the threat model is different for that versus you know Skype, for instance. So what does that mean about protection for the, those users' data? What does it mean for the protection of their contacts on their device or in the system? And third, I, I would love to see students come in knowing a little bit about incident response, about the the knowledge gaps that need to be closed before doing eviction uh, about whether to you know pull the plug right away or or wait and watch um, and, and some ways of thinking about risk to the business based on the behavior that you're observing so that you can tell the difference between say commodity malware versus something uh, a little more targeted but I, you know I, I see students come in all the time with great projects that they've maybe done outside of campus uh, internships where they've built really interesting things. And that, like, the fact that they're doing work outside of their normal university curriculum is fantastic. Like, that that propels a candidate up into the top 5 to 10% for me. Um, but an ideal candidate would have spent a little bit of time 
understanding the notion of risk as it applies to software. So how do you think they get that notion of risk? I mean, obviously, if these folks don't have it, it's probably because they weren't taught it in the university setting that they're coming out of. And we'll talk a little bit more about universities here in a little bit. But I mean, if they're not if they're not getting that in college, how would you think that they would go about getting that concept of, of risk and developing systems with risk in mind? You know, that's a that's a really good question. It's a tough one to answer too, so I don't expect you to necessarily. Have to no, that's a that that's one. a really good question. If if they aren't getting it as part of their their curriculum, um, well, and let, let's phrase it this way. Know, let's phrase it this way too. I mean, obviously, if they're not getting it part of their curriculum, then maybe that curriculum is obviously a part of the problem. Sure. So for for the folks who are listening to this, who are educators, who are and when we have we're going to have some of those educators or they're teaching university classes. How do you teach risk? I mean, what, what does it look like when you're teaching risk? Is it its own kind of class or its own kind of theme? Or is it something that's kind of permeating all the things you're teaching? Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I had a really good, really good class in university about professional ethics. And rather than being a really dry class about codes of conduct and ethical obligations, uh, my professor was uh, an attorney by trade and had worked on the litigation for a medical device that uh, did radiation treatment for cancer patients. And this device was software controlled. That software had a like an integer overflow bug such that it, under some conditions, would deliver an inappropriate dosage of radiation to the patient. And so for him, like this was a visceral, like, like very down-to-earth, human-impacting life-or-death subject to talk about. Not from the perspective of boy, you'd better test things really well, or uh, we shouldn't use software in safety-critical applications. But the notion that there are different levels of risk for different kinds of components, and there's a scale there. It's important to know whether the thing you're, the thing you're writing code for is going to go into a children's toy versus you know, the guidance system for a missile versus the, uh, you know, the things that protect pilots. Uh, kind of at the front of the cockpit as they're as they're flying a plane. So that's, a, I think, a good place to start. I'm sure most curriculums already have kind of a, a focus on professional ethics uh, for graduating seniors, either in software engineering or computer science. And that's a good place to, to introduce security there as well. Uh, because one of the things that I've observed in our organization is that we, we started out with security being centralized, where you had a security team. Those were the guys that you would go talk to if you had security questions. And as a result, people kind of felt that they were responsible for the risk profile of the software that we shipped. But of course, one or a handful of people can't be can't do a great job of ensuring that the 200 to 500 people in the organization make great risk decisions. And so, the the culture that we've shifted to is that every engineer and every engineering manager needs to feel responsible for the risk that they're imposing when they add new features. They need to, to, to feel responsible to customers for protecting the, the privacy and the integrity of the data that has been entrusted to them. And so I think that fits in really naturally as a topic for professional ethics. Well, and that's kind of that's kind of the thing Microsoft, to some degree, is famous for historically, is the fact that they really, I, I won't necessarily say invented, but at least pioneered in the mainstream the model that, you know, we don't just have security people all of our people have that responsibility for security to some degree. And I, and I think from what I've read that, that Microsoft attributes that a lot of their successes in squashing out the number of significant security bugs that come out to that notion that everybody in some degree is responsible for understanding risk and understanding that threat model. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and that, and that came from making mistakes for so long, right? That eventually it became something you couldn't deal with. I want to pause just a moment and tell you about one of our sponsors. And I really love it when I can talk about sponsors uh, that are products I actually use. And that product in this case is CloudShark. The best way I can describe CloudShark is like Wireshark in your browser. It allows you to upload packet capture files, tag them, and perform basic analysis on them. I actually use CloudShark quite heavily when writing Practical Packet Analysis 3 and developing the online course of the same name. It allowed me to tag the packet captures in ways that made sense to me. Uh, so I could tag them whether they were troubleshooting scenarios or security scenarios, even tag them based upon the book chapter or the protocols contained within them. Saved me a ton of time. 
It provides a lot of great analysis features too. It'll allow you to search through packet captures using a standard search language or filters that you're used to from other tools. Uh, it also allows you to scan for security threats. This is a pretty new feature, and I had a chance to play with it recently, and it's really neat for providing investigative context as you're going through a PCAP. Now, CloudShark is made by the folks at QA Cafe, who are good friends of mine, and you can learn more about it by going to cloudshark.org. If you decide to take a serious look at it, make sure you tell them that you heard about it from me on the Source Code Podcast. Now, back to Matt. Obviously, you've worked for Microsoft for, for quite a long time now. And, you know, I've also worked for, you know, what I call a vendor, too, for a while, right? And that's, there's ups and downs. We've talked all about a lot of the ups and, and having all the, these great resources to work with and all these great mentors. But there's certainly some downs sometimes, too. And uh, I know one of the things I've observed, especially in security, is that we're kind of self-cannibalizing in some ways. Um, and people tend to view vendors as these big monoliths. They're just like a singular entity and not made up of actual individual people. And, and I, I know I've seen that working for vendors from time to time. I'll, I'll, I'll look on Twitter and, and somebody was mad at one thing a vendor did. Therefore, everybody who works at that vendor is an idiot, that type of thing. And Microsoft has been around longer than anybody. So I'm sure you get a lot of that too, where somebody, you know, their computer shuts down on its own one day. Therefore, all of Microsoft security is horrible or SMB is horrible or any number of these features is horrible and everyone is horrible at their jobs. Does that ever affect you? Does that ever get you down? Or is that something you've just kind of learned to completely ignore and focus on doing your job to the best of the ability you can? You know, it doesn't get me down too much. The, the places where I've experienced something like that is when I go and talk to customers, I'll, I'll give a presentation at something like Microsoft's Ignite conference. And my tactic is to be disarmingly transparent say listen i do my work with integrity the the work that i'm going to show you or talk about today isn't just my team's work but the work of everyone in the organization you know around things like encryption at rest or encryption at transit so i'm happy to share in as much detail as you would like exactly how we do things so then afterwards, some people come up and have questions and they, they say things like, hey, I had this really frustrating experience calling support because uh, such and such, such a thing happened. Or, um, you know, uh, one of my accounts was compromised and Microsoft didn't help me in the way that I thought they should have. Um, I feel totally comfortable saying, you know, I'm sorry that that happened. Like that shouldn't, that shouldn't have happened that way. Can I have your name? Can you tell me a little bit more about what happened? And, you know, I will go figure out, like, how, why this went wrong and see what we can do to fix it. Like, because you're already starting there on a, uh, I guess, with an attitude of humility that, yep, I make mistakes. All organizations make mistakes. But here's a human face that you can associate it with it. Come talk to me. Like, this is a safe place. Uh, and, and, and so I think I, I think having having humans, whether those are, you know, program managers who are really skilled at talking to customers or just engineers who maybe need a little bit of experience, uh, a little bit of contact with the people that actually use the technology that they build, uh, that could be a really could be a really good relationship builder. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess it it changes the dynamic for some people when they come into this angry or they're upset when they can look at a company not as a stock ticker symbol or as a logo, but actually as a human face. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that's and that that kind of mirrors some of my experience too. So uh, I was curious to see, you know, if you saw that similarly. It sounds like you do, but that's that's got to be a tough thing, right? Because especially because some of these folks come with you and they're maybe just a little upset. Every now and then, you might get someone who's just a little bit angry, and uh, that's kind of definitely a hard thing to deal with. That's something I've dealt with. But it sounds like you, uh, your whole concept of being kind of alarmingly transparent goes a long way for you there, and that's that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and it's back to the the notion of just being willing to say I don't know, right? You know, yeah. I you know I don't I don't know why that happened. That's not the way it should have worked. And just sit and listen. Yeah, well, you're, and, you're here to serve them. So and and there's very few people working in very few places who who like don't want to do a good job, right? Like everyone That's is right. trying and, and sometimes companies make mistakes or companies, you know, do the wrong thing. Or sometimes one person does the wrong thing and it makes look bad on the entire company. But generally speaking, you know, most people want to do a good job. <laughs> and that's, that's uh, right. I think some people have time, have a hard time realizing that without a person to talk to about that. So that, that makes sense. Um, well, let's, so let's talk a little bit more about, um, about education and information security. Obviously your background is uh, in education is computer science. That's what you got your degree in. 
most people I think nowadays who are going into information security specifically are not getting computer science degrees. Uh, the statistics tell us that they tell us that most people are actually getting uh, either IT related degrees or telecommunications degrees, or they're even coming from something completely different um, and like physics or something like that. And then moving into security. Uh, I'm curious, you know, with the applicants you're dealing with, and I know you're dealing with a lot of software engineers too. So maybe they're not necessarily coming from coming with the intention of being a security person, but what, what have you seen? What are the trends you've seen in terms of where people are coming from with an eye on moving into security? You know, for me, for me, because I'm in an, in an engineering discipline, all of the, all of the applicants that I see are computer science or software engineering grads. Um, so I haven't seen as much of the shift from software engineering to IT or maybe to physics. Um, but I will say, you know, one of the most talented people that I've ever worked with was an econ major. And he was really good at software, really good at understanding risk. Um, so if there's actually, if there's one thing that I would like to see change in our organization, I would love to see more people from kind of a, a heterogeneous mix of backgrounds. Because uh, I think just like diversity and perspectives from, based on maybe, maybe culture and gender are important. I think diversity in backgrounds from, uh, from professional training or from schooling is important too. You know, I had an experience a couple of years ago when we were working on machine learning for security. And we were trying to determine, using math, uh, whether, to, whether a, 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 a TCP connection was periodic or not. Right? We're looking for malware that's beaconing to a command and control system. And you know, as an engineer, I'm like trying to make a list and compute averages and, and just do really, really hacky things. And we had a bioinformatics uh, machine learning background guy come over and work with us for a little bit. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, we need to understand, is this a normal distribution or a Poisson distribution? There's a specific branch of statistics that you can use for this. And then once you think you've built a model that's accurate, you test it by seeing if you can predict the next couple of beacons. And then you say you found a beacon. And it was eye-opening to me in two ways. One, in this instance and in other instances, when I worked with him, he was able to relate my problem back to something that he had dealt with in bioinformatics rather than in just pure computer science terms. But second, he solved my problem using math that I didn't know existed. And so I think we miss out on a lot of uh, maybe more appropriate approaches to solving problems because we don't have that kind of diversity in our organization. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. And I'm, I'm utterly fascinated by by the model you guys have where you take in folks with a more of a traditional background, because most of the universities I, I've seen, even the, one, the ones teaching normal computer science, teach it with an incredible focus on programming for efficiency. A lot of them mm-hmm. are, are teaching it from the perspective of really 20 years ago when system resources were more of a concern. And, and certainly some of that's coming back around with cloud computing and, and we were paying for resources and that matters a little bit more now than maybe it did 10 years ago, but still not nearly as much as it did 20 or 30 years ago. So when you get those folks in and maybe they've been focused ext- extremely so much on efficiency and not on secure code or things like that, how, how do you handle that? I mean, is there uh, is it just trial by fire and allowing them to make mistakes and fail fast or is it something else? Well, you know, I, I start by trying to, to to give them some perspective on what problem we're trying to solve. Try to give them an understanding of our data center layout, what it is that we're trying to defend against. I tell them about maybe uh, intrusions that I've read about in the news and other organizations, and I'll walk them through those. Uh, Every Friday, I get my guys together and we watch um, just a a talk, a recorded talk from a conference recently. And so I try to cycle through uh, you know, real-world stories of breaches and what the adversary did and, and how they progressed through the kill chain. We walk through vulnerabilities. We walk through secure coding and architecture, um, you know, perspectives. We'll walk through, hey, here's a new tool. Here's how Bloodhound works. Look, it's really cool. Maybe we should go use this in our, our network defense. Um, and so that's one way that I try to help people ramp up and I try to tune or tailor those talks to the people that I know are are going to be present with us or or maybe something that we're starting to work on in the next month or two. but but second, I, f- I find that when when I give people when i when I'm able to really get them to internalize the purpose of our team, you know, not just the sense that, yeah, we're writing software to do security, but we have customers that are depending on us. And here's the gaps that we know about. Here's the gaps that we've closed. And here's the whole picture, right? Here are the kind of threat actors that we know want access to our customer data. 
here's how those threat actors work. Here, read these breach reports from outside the company. I want you to see if you can take this particular TTP and make a detection for it. Go. Wow. And then just let them go. Yeah. So it sounds like you're really creating this culture of learning where, where it's kind of constantly encouraged. And, and, and that's fantastic. Now, when you when you go through and you do these conference talks, or you talk about these uh, these specific threat actors or the things you're talking about doing here. You know, you talk earlier about kind of data and, and having a, a lot of data and, and reinforcing concepts with that. Do you bring in the data yourself or do you take a different approach, more challenging them to go out and seek out the data on their own to kind of better grasp the concepts you're talking about? A really good question. It depends on the the maturity of the engineer that I'm working with. So a brand new engineer out of university, I'm going to be very prescriptive about what I want them to do. Because for that engineer, the challenge isn't, uh, the challenge for them is just how do I get enlisted in Git? Where do I find the source code? Uh, how do I write a new module for this agent? How do I write uh, like an HD insight job on the big data system to process the data that comes out of the agent? So you know, the work item for them is here's this ETW provider. It has events that look like this. I want this event ID. And when these things are true, I want you to emit an event from the security event log. Here's how to post process it. And then after they've shown that they can do that, then I'll start to be a little more fuzzy on the outcome and say, here's a technique. I think there's an ETW provider that logs activity or evidence associated with this technique. Why don't you go take a look at that? And so then we start to have more conversations, not about specifically where to find the data, but about, okay, I found the data. How do I post-process this in a way that makes sense? Right? I have 100,000 machines that are kind of organized in a homogeneous fashion. So, but we, you know, we don't have a spec that says what every registry key is supposed to look like or what every thread creation event is supposed to look like. So I need to teach my engineers how to do kind of baselining. Right? Can I look back at the last 30 days of data to discover what normal looks like? Can I look at other machines in the same day to determine whether a change is expected or not? Um, and so I, it's funny, I had a, an engineer yesterday say that, oh, you know, I just, I, learned, I just learned a new technique to put in my tool belt that I can use to solve this problem. And that's exactly the kind of learning that I want to see on the team. Wow. So it sounds like you're almost kind of introducing additional complexity as the skill of the engineer kind of grows, whereas initially they, you'll hand them the data, but then they have to learn to get the data on their own. And then you're introducing concepts of scale and things like that. And that, that's just amazing. Yeah, I've heard organizations that do the opposite, that say, we hired you because we believe that you're able to meet this bar. Here's a problem we want you to solve. Go figure out how to solve it. Um, I haven't tried that yet. Maybe I should. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like what you're doing now is uh, is working pretty darn well. So that's uh, that's great. Um, so, you know, talking about education, we... Uh, I mentioned that you you have this concept where you're bringing in people with computer science backgrounds and you're kind of teaching them security. And really, if you look at the education, it's secondary education right now in colleges, you have traditional CS, which is maybe not evolving too much. It's kind of what it always has been to some degree. And then you have all these new majors that are popping up that are dedicated to computer security. Is that the wrong approach? I mean, what, what do you think about that? Do you think that computer security should be its own separate focus, its own separate major? Or do you think that better works when it's someone who has a more traditional computer science approach, but with maybe just a little bit of security specialization, maybe towards the end of the program. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question. I would lean towards making it a concentration in a software engineering curriculum because I think a lot of the, the same, the same disciplines or the same patterns that you need in software engineering, you want to apply in security as well, right? If you don't have empathy for the engineers that are trying to build a large cloud service. You know, if you don't understand the, um, maybe the patterns that they're going to apply or what best practices they're using, then it's going to be more difficult to make a risk decision about what good versus bad looks like. Um, and, and, and frankly, if you're, if you're building a network defense system kind of from scratch, you're going to end up building a cloud service. So it behooves you to know how to build one to the same degree of scale and reliability and performance maintainability as if you were building something that was customer facing. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I think I, I would rather have engineers that know how to build great, maintainable, durable systems than engineers who know a lot about buffer overflows and how to do static analysis, but can't tell me you know, a good design pattern using queues and reliable storage and Azure functions. Sure. 
Well, what about the, you know, one thing I, I noticed that drives a lot of people away from traditional CS is math. Um, mm. A lot of people just can't handle the math or maybe they can, but they're, they're just afraid of it and they don't think they can. Do you think that's, uh, for all for for most people in security, do you think that's a necessary portion of this, or do you think CS degrees can exist outside something math focused? You know, if you had if you had asked me before my experience with the the coworker with a bioinformatics and statistics background, I would have said that you know I really haven't needed math beyond the high school level, you know, beyond high school calculus to get my work done. But what that experience opened my eyes to was the notion that it's not, you know, I should have taken more math classes, not because I'm going to use the math, but because I need to know what techniques exist so that I can spot opportunities to apply them to solve a problem. It's in, in just the same way that, uh, you know, we want to teach students the uh, object-oriented design patterns, not because they're going to go use the observer pattern every time that they write a new piece of code, but because when they need to use it, they'll know that it exists. Uh, and so, you know, maybe there's an opportunity there to do either a little bit of a kind of a survey program and say, here's, uh, you know, a, a, a two-week introduction to many different topics. Or this is something that, you know, it's fine that we can have CS engineers leave and graduate, matriculate without a deep math background. But then the organizations that they go into need to be wise about balancing out those gaps with other engineers who do have a background there and can maybe spot opportunities to solve problems in a better way. Yeah. So it's almost like it's maybe a little less calculus and maybe a little more applied statistics. Would, would, That's a, would especially, yeah, especially in a world where we're doing data science even though we're not data scientists. I think that's a really good that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, now that, that's interesting, you know, and, and, and I think about that quite a bit as far as what, you know, if, if computer science is the way of the future, what does computer science look like in the future? And I think most of us agree it probably doesn't look exactly like it looks now, but uh, there's a lot of debate on what that looks like moving forward. And I think I think the math component's a big part of it because that's, that's really the thing I see is the vast majority of people I've talked to are scared away from computer science due to the math requirement. And there's probably something to be said about high schools, maybe not preparing them for that in some way, but I'll, Honestly, I'm not sure some high schools, especially in rural areas uh, where they're having trouble finding teachers or paying them enough anyway, are going to be able to uh, to prepare people any better for math than they are right now. Uh, that's yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, I think the other thing, maybe we can deal with some of the anxiety around feeling like that math is scary. You know, if someone had sat down or mentored me as I started university and said, you're going to take classes that feel like a waste of time. You're going to take classes that are really hard, where you feel like the material doesn't come easily to you and the homework is very repetitive. That's what learning looks like. And I'm telling you this as someone who went through the process, discovered that this was correct, and you need to trust me. So don't give up. Don't look with disdain on your professors. Don't, don't, don't not do your homework. But instead, rise to the challenge and trust me that by the time you've gotten over these challenges, this stuff will have sunk in and it'll pay dividends for you for decades to come. Uh, that little bit of mentoring would have been really, really helpful for me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think the popular media kind of plays into this a little bit because I think, you know, 20 years ago, math was seen as kind of this thing, nerdy thing where you had to be really smart to, to do math in college. And I think we're for, I think it's a good thing. I think we're getting away from that now. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's ever been cooler to be doing things with math if that makes sense. Uh, the popular media has kind of made that where it's more socially acceptable and more of a thing that normal people do. Uh, at least I think so. I don't know what you think on that. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I, I, I think we've certainly seen, maybe thanks to Silicon Valley, uh, the notion of you know some of these geekier professions uh, becoming becoming minor celebrities. Uh, I, I would love to, to find a way to get students a little taste of different aspects of computer science or software engineering. When I was visiting the Microsoft campus in Israel last month, uh, one of the engineers was involved in a really neat program. He was going to meet with a bunch of university students. He was going to give them, you know, maybe a three or four hour opportunity to build software that solves a real world problem. And what he chose was ransomware. So he put together a little skeleton application that receives file system events from Windows. 
And he was going to give the students a quick overview of ransomware. Here are some real-world ransomware samples. Here's some data on the kind of events you're going to get from Windows. You guys work together in teams, and I want to see who can build the best ransomware detection app. Like That's something that any university could do as a hack day or hack afternoon project, right? And out of that, you're going to get a handful of students who say, wow, this is really neat. I want to do more of this. Hey, there's your first, your first set of people for your security concentration. Wow. I mean, that's great. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. I know, I know you're busy and we're running low on time here, so I want to get you out of here on this. And this is the question I ask most everyone uh, kind of at the end of this. So, you know, let's say that I'm – you know, in college, I'm getting ready to graduate and I want a job doing, you know, something similar to what you're doing. I want to work at Microsoft or somewhere similar, or maybe I'm later in my life and I want to switch careers. I want to get into security. What would you say to a person like that? Where, where should you start? What should you focus on? What's the outlook there like? You know, I, I think the outlook is super positive. I would say find the, find the closest B-Sides conference that's coming up in your area. Go spend some time watching the things that people are talking about. Go talk to the people who are doing the work and try to get a sense for whether you could see yourself doing that work. Does it make your heart beat faster? Does it have a purpose that you can get behind? Uh, Because what I've seen is the most successful engineers love what they're doing so much that it feels like play to them. You know, they go home on the weekend and if they get a bright idea, they whip out their laptop and they want to try it right away because, you know, they might be on the cusp of something really big. Uh, and, and, and so it's, you know, it's one thing to decide, okay, I want to get into security. I think this might be, might be something I want to do more of. Uh, but the availability of conference recordings on things like YouTube, the availability of B-Sides conferences all around the states, if not the world, I think has democratized um, the ability to get a little taste of what that profession looks like. And you should definitely take advantage of it. Wow. Awesome. I love it, Matt. Well, listen, I really appreciate you making the time here. This was uh, very insightful. I was really excited to learn about some of the stuff you guys have going on at Microsoft and the way you, you handle education there. It's, it's, it's pretty exciting stuff. So again, uh, thanks for your time. I appreciate it, brother. Thanks, Chris. This has been great. That's going to do it for us on this episode of the Source Code Podcast. And if you enjoyed what Matt had to say, make sure and thank him for coming on. You can find him on Twitter at mswan, M-S-F-T. Uh, Swan has two N's in it, so it's M-S-W-A-N-N-M-S-F-T. As always, I really love to hear your feedback as well. You can find me on Twitter at chrissanders88. Of course, if you like the podcast, we always appreciate you taking your favorite podcasting app and subscribing and liking or giving a thumbs up or giving a heart or whatever they have you do. Uh, We always appreciate that. That helps us out a lot as well. We've only got two more episodes left in the first season of the Source Code podcast, and we've saved what I think are a couple of the best for last. I think you're really going to enjoy the next two we have coming up. So look for announcements about who those two special guests are. And with that said, we'll see you here in a couple weeks. I appreciate y'all. Remember, it's always a beautiful day. Catch you back, guys.